0: Hello everyone and welcome back to Last Week in the Garden. In today's episode Dr Lyndon Burford takes us through the history, misconceptions and the reality of nuclear war. How do we achieve nuclear disarmament? How are nuclear weapons used to maintain power? And what can we learn from our previous encounters with nuclear threats?
1: There are a lot of ways in which we learnt the wrong lessons from the Cuban Missile Crisis and actually What the history books are now telling us and what the archives have told us over the decades since then is that what actually happened in that crisis and the way that it was actually resolved is far from what we've been told and far from what i think most people in public believe about that crisis
0: now this is our third episode on the ongoing crisis of ukraine while it is devastating to hear the news and the stories of the situation it is important to keep ourselves in a mindset which isn't all doom and gloom it is why next week we have Professor Stephen Lorries to discuss the question, what happens in your brain when you meditate? As well as this, to celebrate spring, we have joined with our friends at Bloom and Wild to bring you our latest collection, The Secret Life of Plants. Starting April 5th, we have, why are flowers a biological mystery? April 12th, how did fungi create life as we know it? And two more talks scheduled for later this month. You can save your seat at onegarden.com upcoming, and I hope to see you there in the audience. Now let's get back to today's episode with Dr. Lyndon Burford on his research into nuclear weapons and nuclear deterrence.
1: We live in a world where the the world's most powerful and influential and richest countries, the United States, United Kingdom, Russia, France, China, they all regularly claim in public that making nuclear threats, as Vladimir Putin's now doing, quote, guarantees international security. So what we're seeing in his behavior is it's not some kind of aberration or bug. I mean, we literally have been hearing from these countries that this is the international security system and this is what guarantees peace and security. In its most basic sense, nuclear deterrence is the idea that by making threats of nuclear violence, you can ensure your own security by preventing other countries from invading you or from attacking you with nuclear weapons or with overwhelming uh, conventional uh, military force. But the way that it actually works in practice is, is far removed from the very kind of simplistic way that we understand that idea. So let me unpack a little bit around ways to think about deterrence and what it is and how it works. So if you think of the most, the most basic sense, far removed from nuclear weapons, think about a child that's misbehaving. If a child's misbehaving and you threaten it with some kind of punishment, like you're going to ground the child or send them to their room. If that child then continues to misbehave and you don't carry out the threat, then what they learn is that your threat is not credible. You're not actually going to do what you say. So there's no, there's no consequences for them if they keep misbehaving. And what that means is that the next day they're quite likely probably to keep doing whatever, whatever it was that they're doing. Now, if you bring that across into the nuclear realm, One way to look at that is nuclear threats only work if they're credible. So if your adversary, if you make threats against your adversary and your adversary doesn't believe that you're actually willing to follow through with those threats, it's unlikely that they're going to be deterred from doing whatever it is that you would like to deter them from doing. And so uh, the way that people generally tend to talk about and think about what makes for a credible nuclear threat is that you need to have the capability to to attack with nuclear weapons and you also need to have the willingness you need to have the the willingness to to take the moral risk of saying yep i will annihilate all human life if that's what it comes to i will i will start a global nuclear war in the interests of my imagined political community so the trouble is that in, so that's the sort of theory of how you make credible nuclear threats in order to deter your adversary from taking whatever action it is that you want to deter the trouble is that in, in practice that, that's so far removed from the reality of the way the world works and so the question then for me becomes well well, what can we do about that because to me this is not security this is insanity you know the idea that this is peace and security it's, it's clearly not uh, and so then the question becomes well where do we go from here? And and I would argue that we need to go into a much deeper conversation about the urgent need for nuclear disarmament. Two of the things that I think we really need to talk about, increasing political will to move towards disarmament and increasing funding for disarmament. And so on the political will side, we need to start to recognize that some of the stories we've been told about nuclear weapons and deterrence just don't match historical reality. Uh, And then we also need to look at the recent uh, changes that have been happening politically, and I point in particular to the United Nations Treaty, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, also known as the Nuclear Ban Treaty. And that's a treaty that entered into force last year. Uh, I think 60 countries have now joined and ratified that treaty. And it's a treaty that says black and white, there is no legitimacy for nuclear weapons or nuclear threats. And nuclear weapons and nuclear threats absolutely play no role in guaranteeing international peace and security. So there's a real shift there in the political realm. And I think we need to highlight that conversation and engage more deeply with it. And then on funding, the other challenge is if you look at uh, we live in what I would call a permanent nuclear war economy. And what I mean by that is that we live in a world where the process of preparing for nuclear war, building nuclear weapons and making nuclear threats is enormously profitable. It's profitable financially for the countries and companies that, that spend a lot of money generate a lot of economic activity out of that. But it's also profitable politically for the politicians that have very close relationships with those companies and with the money go around. And so when you look at people who are like myself researching and exploring opportunities and possibilities for disarmament. Uh, I live in a world where the only money that we have is from philanthropic uh, foundations or from certain uh, governments, um, particularly from non-nuclear weapon states. And so there's a vast imbalance there between the funding that goes towards trying to maintain the potential to make nuclear threats, which again, That's what Vladimir Putin's doing right now to serve his invasion of Ukraine and the money that gets dedicated to trying to develop uh, ideas around innovation and nuclear policy that can lead us to more cooperative approaches, for example, to move towards disarmament. Again, to go back to the Cuban Missile Crisis as an example, the, the public story about that crisis is that the Soviet Union put missiles on Cuba. President Kennedy on behalf of the United States escalated the crisis, blockaded Cuba, and threatened a willingness to go to worldwide nuclear war, in his words, uh, if the Soviet Union didn't remove the missiles. And then what happened is that the Soviet Union backed down and removed the missiles in in return for um, the United States promising not to invade Cuba. And that's what resolved the crisis. So that's the public narrative it's actually only part of the story. And as I've explained, I think a pretty inaccurate narrative. The other part of the story around how that crisis was actually resolved was that secretly using back channels, the United States promised to remove some of its nuclear missiles from Turkey. So at the same time, um, the Soviet Union wanted to put nuclear missiles on Cuba, the United States already had nuclear missiles based in Turkey. So obviously, very close to Russia and able to hit, um, well, the Soviet Union, but Russia essentially very quickly. And so what actually happened to resolve that crisis was that, using these secret back channels, uh, the Kennedy administration agreed with Russia that if the Soviets would remove their missiles from Cuba, the Americans, further down the line, would remove their missiles from Turkey. Now, we didn't find that out for 25 years. So can you imagine all of the histories that were written, all of the public lessons that were learned for two and a half decades about the Cuban Missile Crisis were that escalation is what led to uh, the resolution of the crisis. And so we learned the wrong lesson. What we actually now know from decades of research later, is that what actually resolved the crisis was a de-escalation of tension. It was the United States promising to remove a threat. From Russia to remove these missiles from from, um, Turkey. So uh, look, I'm certainly not going to say that I know how to resolve a a crisis like the crisis we have in Ukraine. I I absolutely do not, but what I do know is that in terms of the lessons that we've learned from past crises, we've learned the very opposite of what was actually true precisely because nuclear weapons policy is anti-democratic. It is secretive. And because it's so secretive, the United States wouldn't allow anyone to know that what it actually did in the Cuban Missile Crisis was it sought to de-escalate by by promising to remove missiles from Turkey. So I think that's probably a really good lesson to take away from, from Cuba. And it might be worth thinking around that in the current situation in Ukraine. It certainly Putin has, um, you know, it's an act of aggression, what he's done, he is a war criminal, absolutely. But I'm, I certainly would uh, disagree with anyone that would say that what we need to do is escalate NATO's um, engagement in that war, for example, through a no-fly zone. A no-fly zone, let's just be clear, a no-fly zone, which you hear I talked about a lot in the media at the moment, that's basically saying, we will start shooting down Russian planes. And if Americans or NATO start shooting down Russian planes, we could very quickly end up in a nuclear war. And I would certainly uh, hope that that cooler heads prevail and that we don't do that. So, anyway, that's how I, that's how I'd think about ways to possibly look to um, de-escalate uh, away from nuclear war. Multiple occasions throughout the nuclear age where we avoided an unwanted use of nuclear weapons through pure luck. A Soviet commander named Stanislav Petrov and so this guy is commonly referred to as the man who saved the world or for those who are maybe less the man who may have saved the world. So in 1983 Stan Petrov was uh, the commander of a Soviet early warning radar base and his job was to collect data coming in from the Soviet early warning system to, to warn of any incoming uh nato or or american missiles and basically just to pass that information up the military command chain and so he's on duty in 1983 uh late one night and the alarm starts sounding and so he's told you know commander we've got an incoming missile oh commander we've got another oh commander we've got six five i think it was five or six incoming missiles and he said check all of your equipment what's going on and they they check their equipment and they said maximum confidence level. So at our maximum level of confidence, we're about to suffer a devastating nuclear attack. And his job, all of the military doctrines, all of his training, um, everything in the military protocol said his job was one thing, to take that information and pass it straight up the military command chain. And the general assumption is, and I think it's a pretty strong assumption, that the response would have been that the Soviet Union immediately launched a retaliatory attack. And Stan Petrov, this one guy, a military officer whose job was to do that thing, he looked at the warning and he just said, no, I'm not doing it. I just think it's a mistake. There's something wrong. I'm not passing on that information. And so he actually broke protocol. So in that situation, the way that we got lucky was that this military officer, ignored the rules of nuclear deterrence, right? The rules of nuclear deterrence are, it only works if the threat is credible. And that means that you have to A, have the capability and B, be willing to use it. And in that situation, he ignored that protocol and said, no, I'm not following the nuclear deterrence protocol. And in that situation, we avoided very likely uh, a global nuclear war between the Soviet Union and the United States because deterrence didn't work. So again, this question of does deterrence work, um, I would argue that actually it, it doesn't and certainly not, it most certainly does not guarantee international peace and security in the way that the nuclear weapons states argue that it does. The Nuclear Weapons Ban Treaty doesn't, doesn't talk about nuclear energy and the risks that go along with that. The Ban Treaty focuses on nuclear weapons. So it's the, the full title of the treaty is the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, and it as the title suggests, it it focuses on nuclear weapons. What it does is for countries that join the treaty, it requires them not to have nuclear weapons, not to build nuclear weapons. And if they have nuclear weapons when they join the treaty, it requires them to agree on a timetable to eliminate those weapons in their arsenal. But beyond that, and this this starts to get to this issue of nuclear risk around nuclear power plants. Um, As I said, it's not just You know, if you think about the nuclear weapons complex, it's not just the weapons themselves. It's the mining that that goes on. It's the testing of these weapons. And the 2000 nuclear tests that have happened around the world, the nuclear mining that's happened around the world, often in areas that have devastated indigenous communities and communities of color, has left an awful, toxic, radioactive legacy around the world. And those peoples in those areas still suffering that legacy what the nuclear weapons ban treaty does is it creates a legal obligation for the countries that join it to do uh, what's commonly called positive obligations and what those positive obligations are basically is to actually assist with uh, providing health care and assistance to those communities that have been impacted around the world to actually get the healthcare that they need which they have not gotten from the nuclear weapons states uh, and it requires countries that join the treaty to also provide environmental remediation to address those catastrophic humanitarian harms that have been done through nuclear mining through nuclear testing and that's the first time that we've ever had that in a treaty uh, sorry in a in a nuclear weapons treaty so there is a former treaty uh, that was signed in 1968 called the nuclear non-proliferation treaty and that treaty does actually talk about nuclear energy as well as nuclear weapons unfortunately in my personal opinion because i don't support nuclear energy uh the nuclear non-proliferation treaty tries to to balance these things where it says we want to stop the spread of nuclear weapons and we want to try to advance disarmament but at the same time it says and yet we also want to promote the use of nuclear energy And so in my opinion and the opinion of many other people in my field, there's a real, um, there is a, that that balance is problematic because building nuclear power plants creates further nuclear risk. For example, the risks that Russia has showed us in Ukraine, where, you know, they're trying to take over those nuclear power plants in order to shut down electrical supplies to the Ukrainian civilians. But in doing that, is that going to cause an explosion at those nuclear power plants? Right? So there's that risk. But then there's also the risk of developing a civilian uh, nuclear energy system, which is that people then use that civilian system to build nuclear weapons in the way that India, for example, did, where it bought um, civilian nuclear technology from Canada and the United States and then used that technology to to build a nuclear weapon.
0: There's a lot more that we can further discuss on this topic, and Lyndon goes into a lot more detail in his full talk at OneGarden.com. With that, I'd like to remind you again of our upcoming collection with Bloom and Wild, starting next week, The Secret Life of Plants. You can find more information and save your seat to join our live talks by visiting our website at wantgarden.com. I've been your host, Alexander Gurev, and if you've enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review as it really helps us spread the word for our fellows and community. You can find us on social media at onegardenhq, and I hope to see you next Sunday for Last Week in the Garden. Thank you to Dr. Lyndon Burford for his garden talk, Nuclear Weapons, How Can We Avoid War? which was streamed live at OneGarden.com on Thursday the 31st of March 2022. You can find more information about Lyndon on our website at OneGarden.com. Thank you again for listening and as always, stay curious.